from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Lindsay Smith. I am joined in studio today by Evan Smiley. She is a fellow student in the history department here at PSU. Jeff Stone and Evan are working with me this quarter to bring you guys these awesome episodes. We are interested to know what you guys think. Please feel free to contact us on Facebook or Twitter or email beyondfootnotes at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes or soundcloud.com. In the last episode, I interviewed museum professional Eliza Canty-Jones from the Oregon Historical Society. A central theme of that episode was community engagement and how she works to embrace the histories of all Oregonians. In this episode, we are continuing that conversation in many ways, but with a twist. There are many different types and sizes of history museums that each have their own character, missions, and communities. So many departments work together to create an institution that realizes certain goals. Oftentimes, museum professionals have to rewrite those goals and recreate the museum in a way that makes it more approachable, relevant, and inclusive to more people. Eliza touched on the challenge of a museum such as the OHS to connect with its community that is all of Oregon. Today, we will be talking with two new museum professionals from the Clackamas County Historical Society Museum of the Oregon Territory, located in Oregon City. In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, I interviewed Corinne Roop and Maddie Mott. Corinne recently graduated from PSU with a bachelor's degree in history. Her focus was public, indigenous, and northwest history and biology. She worked as an intern at the Museum of the Oregon Territory, mounting exhibits prior to being hired as the director of programs. She also worked as a certified professional midwife for some time in the Portland area. Maddie is currently an undergraduate in the PSU History Department and will be graduating in June. In 2015, she worked at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry as an intern researching funding opportunities for the exhibits department. She took another internship at OMSI in the development department. She came to the Clackamas County Historical Society in January 2016 as an intern and worked on many exhibits until she was hired in as the development coordinator last June. She will continue her studies as a graduate student next year. They're both Oregon natives. Welcome, Corinne and Maddie. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, well, thanks for having us. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Let's begin with some more information about you guys. Please tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get involved in public history, and what brought you to Portland State? Um, Well, this is Corinne. I'll go first. And um, I am a non-traditional student. I started my college career back in 1995 after I graduated from high school, uh, but uh, took some time off to thoroughly ruin my 20s, um, kind of catch up and do some things. I was always a super, super interested and super nerdy kid interested in history. It's totally obsessed with Little House on the Prairie and uh, all that kind of Oregon Trail. I don't even know, like <laughs> mythology, I think, really. Um, super into it and but I fell into other things I just didn't realize that you could have a career in history it never occurred to me uh, that one did that at all I came from very practical <laughs> Lutheran people and that was just not what we did yeah so uh, and then yeah I came back I thought I was going to uh, continue my midwifery career and become a nurse midwife and kind of 
I wanted just to get the fastest degree possible, and I realized looking at all of the credits that I had lined up that the fastest degree was going to be a history degree. Um, and then I fell into public history. I didn't know that existed. <laughs> that seemed like the perfect thing. It's like history outside of the boxes of history. It's not academic. It's not, you're not going to become a history teacher, which is what everyone always asks you when you go into mm -hmm. history. Oh, are you going to be a history teacher? Uh, and I always loved museums. I didn't know that you could work in museums. I didn't know that was an option. Um, so when Katie Barber just kind of casually mentioned in an intro to public history class that Clackamas County Historical Society was looking for interns, it was like everything that I loved all lined up. So definitely jumped, jumped in on that one. Well, what brought you to um, Portland State? Because uh, I live in Portland. <laughs> great reason. Portland Community College won't give you a degree. Oh, I was just curious if there was a fun antidote. No, okay. I'm no. sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for That's sharing. Maddie. Um, so I came to Portland State uh, fresh out of high school in 2012. And um, I came to Portland State basically because... There was no other option. Uh, I went to a private <laughs> high school and then applied to a lot of private colleges, and then uh, all the money did not work out. So on the last possible day before you had to announce what college you're going to, I said, uh, Portland State, that's fine. <laughs> um, and it was one of those goals where it's like, okay, you can go to an undergrad that's kind of affordable and then go on to a big school for your master's. Um, I fell into history. I also started as a biology major, similar to Corinne, and... I realized that I'm an awful test taker. Uh, so I said, better not do that for a few years. So uh, I kind of started testing out new waters my sophomore year, and I uh, did women's studies for a year. I was a women's studies major. And then by the end of that year, I remember my favorite part about reading, or during women's studies was reading all the old stories of women from like the 17 and 1800s. I'm like, uh, that's history. I should do that. So I did. Um, and then I kind of got interested in public history because I'm a very practical person. And um, my first year studying history was when I was at OMSI. And all of the people at OMSI have a history degree, uh, which is kind of interesting. All my supervisors did. That's which crazy. Is, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, so um, I wanted to be practical because I like being practical. And I wanted to be able to combine both my degree and the skills I had learned uh, in the museum world. So, yeah, that's how I came here. Okay, well, you guys kind of answered my next question oh. which, uh, in a way, because uh, you both work <clears throat> at the Clackamas County Historical Society Museum of the Oregon Ter Territory, and you both interned uh, there prior to being ha uh, hired as staff members. The museum ex experienced a, a change, you say, um, in, oh, yeah. a, in a previous uh, yeah yeah in a in a previous conversation, Corinne, you um, used uh, the tenets of new Western history to replace the quote wagon wheel mythology associated with the museum. Uh, what are those tenets, and how did you guys help uh, displace that mythology? What kind of you know kind of walk through a little bit or this a is lot our of it? Thing to talk about. Oh my Please God, tell true. me how uh, so how did you totally change I guess, it? To preface this, Kryn and I are a package deal, so <laughs> Kryn and I, Kryn and I interned together, and then Kryn and I got hired within a month of each other. 
So basically, we don't do anything uh, without each other. <laughs> we also took all the same classes, I think, except for one. <laughs> yeah, we did. It's my true. senior year. Um, so the new Western history. So we took, we both took Katie Barber's Intro to Public History class, and that's how we both got started at CCHS. And then we both took uh, Katie Barber's. Uh, <laughs> Oh, the 291, gosh. or no, 491, 492, 492 and it was uh, American Western History. And the the first one, obviously, if you've taken 491, you read all the time. <laughs> and so the main ideas were, that we learned was, there's new Western history, and then there's old Western history. So old Western history was the main school of thought that predominated the field for decades, and it was very much... Uh, rooted in, oh my gosh, this is such a flashback, Frederick Jackson Turner's, um, oh my gosh, Frontier, the, the Frontier, Frontier Theory, theory um, where it was like, the West was empty, and there was land for the taking, and the noble white man came and took the land, uh, and it's very like a John Wayne, Cowboys and Indians, very outdated story, and that's just not factual like that's not what happened yeah and even kind of the updated version of the ternarian theory of uh that there was essentially only two groups that were fighting over the land there was the indigenous group that you know the american indians and then there was white settlers was kind of the like oh well okay you know there's some complexity there but even that isn't really telling an honest story of the west um that the west and and kind of that, that leads into new western history um, which is the idea that the West is a complex place. Like, it, yeah. was, it was never a simple... Uh, so, the, the, yeah. Yeah, that the frontier wasn't just a line that kept moving West as people marched toward it, that it was something more than that. So, New Western History uh, is... The school of thought is being... I would say being led by Patty Limerick, who is our very <laughs> favorite. Uh, so, she wrote a book that's called The Legacy Conquest, and basically her whole book and her whole idea can be summed up and saying Western history, new Western history can be thought of in four C's. So the four C's are conquest, uh, continuity, complexity, and there's one more. And there's that fourth one. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, oh, geez. Um, combination. No, it's not combination. No. Mm-mm. Uh, anyways, there's one about uh, that talks about conversion. Convergence? No. I don't Jeez. think it's basically like people coming together. That's not combination. Anyways, nope. anyway, uh, we're pulling in Eliza. Um, so, so it's talking about saying the West was uh, a site of conquest. Like people came here. There were indigenous people that were living here. White settlers came, and when they arrived, the native people had less power, and uh, white resettlers had more. Um, saying that there were a lot of diverse groups of people here. There wasn't just two. Right. The people weren't, it wasn't just simply white people coming from the West. There, previous to contact, there was also internal displacement from other indigenous groups. There was people coming from the South. You had, you know, California was Mexico, which borders Oregon, you know. So there was already uh, people coming from the South. There were uh, people coming from the East. There, you know, even before the opening of Japan or China or anything like that, you had people coming over from Hawaii and that that region of the world. You know, some of the first people to ever set foot on Oregon's beaches were actually Hawaiian. So you actually just had a lot of different people coming from different areas. It wasn't a simple story of Indians and settlers. You know, it wasn't it -hmm. wasn't just John Wayne. It was much more complex and much more interesting. Yeah. Uh, to uh, tell, really. The other thing is uh, complexity, because I think 
you know, there is some of there's parts of Oregon's history that are pretty rough. I mean, uh, written <laughs> to our constitution were black exclusion laws and lash laws and Japanese in incarceration was a part of our history, and we can't sweep those stories under the rug, and we can't just focus on a triumphant resettler narrative that upholds the actions of settlers and then doesn't kind of glosses over the rest of it. And then also recognizing um, that Western history didn't end in the 19th century, uh, which... It didn't end when the frontier closed. Yeah, it didn't. Uh, believe it or not, time carries on. So, I mean, Western history uh, is also a modern field of scholarship. I mean, the West didn't end. Like, we're still a place. Oh, yeah. And the, uh, even, you know, current events, uh, the takeover at the National uh, Wildlife Refuge, that is, like, straight up Western history, like... Go, how, what role does the government play in land use? Like, that is some new Western history, uh, you know, in the daily headlines, kind of. So, so um, part of what we were talking about with the change. So when Corinne and I uh, rolled up at CCHS, <laughs> um, we had our meeting with our wonderful and amazing boss, Claire Blaylock, who uh, also things we would not, we wouldn't be anything without Claire either. Um, so we went upstairs to the museum and... Uh, as I wrote in my personal statement for grad school, it was shocking. Uh, it was, if you can imagine a museum of dead white men, uh, that was the museum we had decided to intern at. Uh, no women were mentioned. There was three. There was three. There was three. Let's be fair. Uh, there was uh, beyond. There wasn't really any people of color had that were mentioned. Maybe one. Yeah, I mean, there were certainly no black people. Certainly uh, none. Um, and then the other thing was the Native American History Hall was. Uh, I wish you could see Corinne's face right now. It was shocking. It was. Um, Describe Corinne's face right now. Um, uh, okay, have you, do you guys know what Bob's Burgers is? There's a scene in Bob's Burgers where Bob asked Tina to make her everything is okay face. And if you don't know what that looks like, you can Google it pretty quick. Um, but it's basically, if your line became a squiggle, and then you lost all your neck because you're shriveling up in uh, sadness. Oh yeah, that's what it was be. painful. It was it's pretty. It was rough. It was really rough. Um, it, but I'm gonna be honest. It fell. It followed a really traditional narrative of uh, Native Americans had been on the land, and then white settlers came and they left, and then they were no more. It was the idea of they just disappeared. The yeah. disappearing Indian was alive and well in our museum, mm -hmm. and it was very much planning them as a very primitive and savage oh, yeah. people. And it's like that is not true at all. So um, it was, funny. yeah, so it's like, okay, wow, this is a lot of uh, stuff. So we changed it. <laughs> we did. Uh, so, but, one, you know, it was <laughs> one of the things about museum work that I w was kind of naive about, I think, when I started the whole process was how political museum spaces yes. are. And yeah. in retrospect, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, no, duh. Museums mm -hmm. are inherently political spaces. Um, anytime you write a narrative, you're drawing a conclusion. You know, like you're you're trying to frame a, a discussion. Um, and I don't. I honestly don't think that the people who had created the exhibits before us had. They hadn't. <laughs> They weren't bad people. Um, <clears throat> it was. Um, they were just yeah, like it just. They weren't. Uh, so I guess <laughs> it was it not professionally be, run for one thing. It was thing. so our museum. So CCHS to give a little backstory has been open since 1952, and um, there has never been a full professional staff until now. 
Correct. basically. And for yeah. many, many years, up until the 90s, they were run uh, without an executive director. Oh, wow. And so even up until Clara showed up, uh, it was basically all volunteer run. I mean, there was yeah. one woman trying to be everyone and reliant on a lot of volunteer support. And while volunteers do possess a great amount of knowledge, um, none of the volunteers were uh, academically trained in Western history. Or modernly trained. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the thing. Historiography changes over time. Just, you know, that not that every historian's favorite equation, change over time. So, yeah, yeah. like, it just, it, historiography changes. Um, so, so, yeah, in the process of doing the reset, there was definitely, I think, we had a, we had a lot of um, struggle and a lot of conversation at the staff level about um, how to balance, like how, you don't want to throw great grandma out in the wagon, mm-hmm. um, but you do have to make the space for modern tellings and modern, uh, like a modern historical practice and an honest story. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it was coming across the, on the Oregon Trail was a triumphant experience for the people that did it. They literally walked here. <laughs> they literally walked across a continent. That's nuts. Uh, but it doesn't take away the displacement of the people that were here before. It doesn't take away the fact that uh, there were um, Mexican descendants in the state since the 1860s. It doesn't take away the fact that um, black people came to the state as slaves, many of them, even though we were a free state and worked illegally as slaves, or you know, black migrants made the choice to go to Washington instead of to Oregon to avoid the lash laws. laws. Like this, these were these are real parts of Oregon's history that uh, that we can tell mm-hmm. and we should tell. The other thing is um, that I think was a conversation we had a lot is the museum is called the Museum of the Oregon Territory. So we need to tell a story of the whole territory and all its people, and we can't just focus on one city. So that was another conscious effort that we had to make. So was the focus um, Oregon City? The focus of the museum previous was definitely Oregon City, and then... Uh, Clackamas County County, uh, kind of, but not, like, it was really the Museum of Oregon City um, and the surrounding, you know, Gladstone... um, Mm-hmm. kind of that that region but not really nothing that went up further than Malala um, what kind of um, like can you give us some examples of what you guys did specifically as interns and did have you um, to rewrite this story like uh, maybe an example of a, an exhibitor or, or what kind of stories what kind of oh stories did gosh. you tell I feel like we need to go, we might need to go flashback to 2016 real quick. You flash. So, Corinne and I's uh, first foray into exhibit development, and I think what was kind of the, is it okay if I just tell like a reset story? Yeah. Okay, let's do a reset story. story. Um, So, back in 2016, all that time ago, almost a year ago, um, Corinne and I were tasked with making the uh, children's interactive area was the rough title for it. Um, so that was kind of the first, basically Claire's goal, and our goal as a staff was, we need to amp up this space. And I think this first exhibit that we did was kind of our, all right, we need, this is our first attempt to really boost our facility. So um, we got money. <laughs> we Man, we were just, we were given a task and we were given $5,000. <laughs> and said, do the task. <laughs> 
Do great, kids. Uh, so our, wow. that was our first kind of, I know. Uh, when we told Katie Barber this, she's like, they gave you that much money? And we're like, well, I what? guess. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so our first, our, I guess we did that, and that was in May. And I guess our big ticket item for it was the augmented reality sandbox. Um, that's definitely been the showpiece for sure. That's I, been, yeah. That's been a kind of our claim to fame for a while. And there's a blog post about it that you can read. So it's basically a sandbox, and it's cool. And Is that on the uh, Public History PDX? It is. It, it is. is. It is. Mm-hmm. I have. Uh, I wrote about it. Yeah. Um, basically, it's a sandbox, and then there's some soft using open source software. It projects a uh, topographical map onto the sand that changes in real time as you move it. So that's that. So that's kind of our first foray into it. But, um, Ooh, but yeah, 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 but to be fair, like the thing that was cool about it is the fact that you can find these in like OMSI or other science museums. But we were, to the best of all our, our knowledge, we were and still are the only uh, history museum that's using it to start to talk about um, environmental, environmental history. history. And how the land affects the history of the space. So yeah, like working on developing programming for that about like, well, okay, so you know, build a mountain. What's the pros and cons of living on top of a mountain? Or, Lots of cons. You know, <laughs> it's hard to get your groceries. Uh, and, I did you know, have one kid tell me that there would be a lot of water on top of a mountain. I'm like, not wrong. Uh, true. <laughs> Still not great. Uh, I wouldn't I put my house there, but whatever. Uh, yeah, or, you know, like, what happens if the river floods if you live by the river? Um, so that was really exciting. Oh, that's, um, that's exciting on my front, because I... I study environmental history so to have plus that's a hot topic right now yeah, that's pretty cool it's, it's a hot it's, it's the environment it's a hot topic right now it's hot, um, it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing we did was um we wanted to start incorporating uh the stories of many different people um but obviously we're a small museum like we only have six thousand square feet so it's not like we can incorporate every single story so we made things like uh crane did the uh our organ family wall and it features uh pictures in these really adorable gold frames of like Chief Kong Comley, um, oh my gosh, Hazel Ying Lee, Abigail Scott Dunaway saying there were more people here than just John McLaughlin, you know, and starting to create like this is our family, like these are the people who lived here before us. Yeah. Um, and then we had a now off display exhibit called the what we called the Google Fusion Map, and it's basically there was a you can code this um, Google software and make a whole bunch of data points throughout uh, a certain area and it'll plot it on a map and then you can pull up the data point and learn more about a certain person or certain events. We had points about like incarceration at the Expo Center and the history of the KKK in Medford because that was a big part of our history that no one really wants to talk about. Um, So stuff like that. So that was kind of planting the seeds of telling a more diverse story at the museum. Mm -hmm. Um, So then, Kurt and I got hired because we're awesome and then we started planning we had this big idea that was like, can we redo a whole museum? Uh, because I think we can. I think it's fine. Uh, we're very naive and probably drink too much coffee. Basically, we're like, can we change everything? And we're like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. So then over the summer was kind of the planning phase. So as yeah, well, spring, spring into summer was definitely the like the planning and developing. Yeah, mm-hmm. like you found us money. <laughs> yeah, so the other thing was, uh, to redo a whole museum, you need quite a bit of cash. Um, so that's where I come in. So I was uh, fundraising with Vigor. Um, so by September, we had $22,000. Um, and then we got another couple thousand rolling in by fall. Um, and then the other thing we did was uh, we recruited 
or Katie Barber asked us if um, for the public history class part of it is you do a client project. Um, so we were asked to be the client. And so I was the course assistant and the public history students, which was, uh, I think, super cool, and they did oh, a really yeah. great job, actually wrote um, text panels for the museum that kind of got us started. Yeah, and that was, that was <clears throat> huge. You know, we are a museum that has um, only one full-time employee, and then we have about one and a half full-time full -time equivalencies for our entire paid staff in our museum. Um, and we are also... At the point that we started, we also were down significantly oh, in our volunteer base. Um, we were for, down in staff, too. There was still three of us for quite some time. Yeah, so we had very few paid or volunteer staff. And so we, we literally would not have been able to do it uh, without the public history students mm -hmm. um, coming in and doing the thing that was so important to me in that project um, was the research that they did and the sourcing of material mm. um, even beyond the writing of the panels themselves which yeah. uh, it was great also you know it's <laughs> if if you're a history student you know that writing the first draft is often very hard uh, and it's much easier to edit after you've written so um, even though a lot of the panels we edited heavily or even kind of rewrote um, just the fact that they were there was something initially there to work off of mm. was huge. It saved us oh, a yeah. year, a, literally a year of time. To give you a rough idea, uh, every undergrad, so there's 20 students total, and I think it was probably 15 undergrads and five grad students. Uh, the undergrads spent a 30 hours each on this project, and the grad students spent 40. And the other thing the grad students did that was really cool was um, they curated this exhibit called Quilts, Community, and Math. So basically, because we're a small history museum and we're kind of like Heritage Goodwill, is that we ended up with a lot of quilts that were just kind of hanging out in our archive. Um, and people love quilts. Um, so we decided to do uh, a math interactive in, in going with the quilt. And there is another museum I visited when I was in San Antonio that incorporated this really, really well. And I was talking about geometry and how many shapes are in a quilt. Like, what was the math? But what work went behind a quilt? So the grad students in that public history class completely did, took that over. Like they wrote the panels, they made mm -hmm. the math interactives, they mm -hmm. chose the quilts. Um, and then I think we did we end up with five or did we end up with six uh, quilts and full five. text panels? Mm -hmm. So we have a year and a half's worth of rotating quilt exhibit mm -hmm. uh, that wow. they that they did for us, which is just incredible because, yeah, you know, not only do people love quilts, but quilts are actually a way into women's history. Yeah. Um, right, right. So yeah. That, was, that was really important. Um, so then the class ended, and then the, uh, we're call, we call it the reset, so when we say reset, we mean uh, redo the whole museum in two months. <laughs> so then we started redoing the whole museum in two months. Um, so the first thing that we did, um, also too, I guess it's important to note, uh, we got a, a grant to really heavily redo our Native American Hall. Yes. Um, so that was one of the big changes was where the museum started, uh, it wasn't really cohesive to the sp physical space itself. So we moved the Native American History Hall to another part of the museum and really redid everything. Yeah, we literally, like you, you don't walk in the same door that you walked into before. Um, the stories that are told are not the stories that were told. Mm -hmm. uh, like everything about, mm, one gallery we were um, 
told we could not touch and that's fine it just meant that's worth yeah. work for us uh but uh yeah pretty much every gallery in the museum changed and because of the fact that we we went from going counterclockwise in the space to clockwise through the space um, th that literally meant that we had to change everything yeah um, and uh so we did so we rewrote <laughs> every single text panel that is on that wall was written in the last two months. Like there is nothing well, old. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's really nothing old on the walls, which is I yeah. think that was that that was an incredible feat to how much uh, you can write in one period of time. So we were we rewrote every text panel, um, and then I think we went gallery by gallery. We took a ton of stuff off display. And can I just break in here because I <coughs> I'm I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm particularly proud of the work that we did in the Native American <clears throat> yeah. Gallery and um, the relationship building. There had not been a relationship between Clackamas County Historical Society or Museum of the Oregon Territory uh, and the Grand Ronde um, government at all. There had been, a, well, no, that's not true. There had been a bad relationship in the 90s and then that ended badly. Um, and then there had been zero, pretty much zero contact between the two organizations. Um, and during the process of the reset, we were not able, not only able to um, reestablish that relationship, but they came up, um, members of their museum staff came up to our museum and helped us walk through our exhibits because we knew, <laughs> we knew from having charming things on display like the slave killer blades uses unknown uh that there were things on display that we probably shouldn't have that were probably yeah. if not nagpro violating at least really deeply offensive um and so their museum staff came up and walked through our gallery um and were just so gracious and helping us decide what to take off display um how to how to care for the items that we took off display um, I'm going to be going down there next week, even though the museum, you know, our museum reset is done so they can show me how to better care for native baskets um, like that. When a, <laughs> we we wrote a text panel. When, they also were extremely gracious in um, helping us not edit our panels, but um, if we wrote something about the Native American community, we would send it down to their cultural curator and he would just read it through and be like, yeah, that sounds about right. Or no, I would say it this way, and just give some suggestions. Um, and there was one panel I sent down about um, reservations and reinstatement. Um, that he was like, "Can I just come up here? Can I just come up? Like it's so bad." You know? uh, <laughs> it's like, "Can I just come up and help you write this?" <laughs> um, so, but that was a big accomplishment because I cannot stress enough. Like the person who had made the Native American exhibit prior to our tenor was almost like blacklisted by <laughs> like he they, he had such an awful relationship and they the Grand Rod had no say in anything that went on display and that's uh, not okay because I'm sure as Eliza talked about uh, history museum it's really important for museums to collaborate and partner with people and it's even more important for a small history museum because our survival as an institution is uh contingent on our ability to build relationships and be sustainable in other ways um so that was a big accomplishment and being able to really redo that gallery and be able to tell a culturally sensitive story um that didn't portray the native people as a 
gone as people who weren't there anymore was huge that's huge especially for a small museum like we're pretty tiny you know yeah um so being able to do that is is a feat i think um so then the other thing that we i guess the other big statement that we made um that set a lot of people off was we made a conscious effort to use the term resettlement when describing um, the process of people coming or emigrating to Oregon in regards to the white settlers, um, white resettlers. Um, So that was another big statement that we had made that is uh, true of modern scholarship. I mean, (laughs) there were people here and then they had used the land and they had settled it and then other people came and then resettled that land. So it makes sense to me. Um, but there was that was another big statement I think that um, needed to happen. But and I think that yeah, I think that there were definitely <clears throat> a few a few people in the uh, in the, the community. museum community that uh, for whom that was a real eye opener and that they <clears throat> had never heard that expression before. And um, for some, once they understood what that was, and also saw that throughout the museum and throughout that that gallery where we talk about resettlement we use many many different terms mm-hmm. for the people that came through um that they were like oh okay well that that makes sense uh, and then for a, a few others um that idea that wagon wheel mythology will never die for them mm-hmm. um and that's that's fine that's just the way that is <laughs> you can't you can't change everybody's hearts and minds but um it just because some people's feathers got ruffled didn't make it not important work that needed to be done and make it more um make it a better educational resource for the people coming through both like student groups that come through because we do have off and you know a very large fourth grade population Uh. that walks through the museum um and also we have a surprising number of foreign nationals who come to our museum uh in the summer months as tourists Mm -hmm. so um you know, being being honest in that way, uh, I think is more interesting. Yeah, and then I think another big part of the museum that doesn't get as much attention was uh, we wanted to bring in a more modern story. Um, and I think one of our unique advantages as a small museum, so we are located on a hill that overlooks Willamette Falls, and I would say we probably have the best view of the falls um. anywhere. So what's really unique about Willamette Falls was it was the site of a lot of different industries and a lot of and trade uh, and technology. And so we're like, that's pretty cool. Like, we can use that to our advantage. So we talk a lot about industry in our hall, modern industry. We talk about the PGE story because Portland General Electric had built their first hydro-powered electricity station at the base of the falls in the 1890s and then created a power line that went from Oregon City to Portland, and that was the first uh, long-distance power transmission line in the country. And that happened right at our footsteps, basically. Um, So we wanted to... We wanted to kind of blend the line. You know, interdisciplinary work is important, and I think we have a unique advantage to incorporate a science and technology story as well. So that was another big thing that we did. Um, and then in addition to really redoing, I think the the last biggest, the other biggest change that we had made was um, we added the hands-on history hall, yes. which kind of continued on the work Kern and I did in 2016 of making new interactive experiences. Because again, pri- Another thing we didn't mention, I don't think, was prior to us coming on, 
there was really nothing for kids. Like, if no. you liked to read and look at old stuff, uh, this was a great museum for you, but... Uh, that's not a reality for a lot of people. So we really wanted to create some more interactive experiences, and the Hands-On History Hall did that as well. And we made, um, we have a game that one of our old program directors had made called Power from the Falls, where basically you create a circuit with pegboards. Um, you make, you have power pylons that you connect to a battery, and you make your own power line, and you can light up houses. It's a, not hard, interactive. Um, and then we also made a Morse code. And it's overlaid. Uh, there's a map of uh, Oregon City to Portland along the river. So that <clears throat> it helps to p tie in that environmental story mm -hmm. again, like place-based place history. Yeah. And then we made a Morse code uh, transmission station, which is kind of <laughs> set up. Uh, it's set up like a battleship where you can't see your partner's Morse code things. But basically you try and tap out a message to whoever's sitting across from you. And apparently a lot of siblings use it because we get a lot of messages that says, you are a terrible sister or you are horrible. Which is fine, but I mean, at least kids are engaging It's uh, surprisingly popular to tell. It is. It's, uh, who I, knew? I love how detail-oriented you have to be to insult your sibling from the other side <laughs> in morse code um but that was another thing that it was i think is unique to us that we had not been taking advantage mm -hmm. of in the past and now we are really trying to yeah the you know oregon city thinking about our constituency as a museum situated in oregon city in clackamas county we have a lot of families we have a lot of people with small children and you know we'll never be omsi i know we keep referencing omsi but you know it makes it um we're hoping to be seen as a place that families can come and have an enjoyable afternoon without having to drive into Portland. Um, you know, we have a very, very popular dress-up station. Uh, so. Yeah. But we wanted it to be welcoming and accessible for all people and all types of learners from adult to child, but also be telling a story that is reflective of the community um, and that's relevant to the community yeah and another uh, thing that we are have instituted in the reset was um turning one very narrow gallery space into a rotating space for other clackamas county organizations mm -hmm. to come and put up a temporary exhibit mm -hmm. so that we really can be i know it's my it's my mission as programs director um to really be the museum of Clackamas County. Like we are the Clackamas County Historical Society. So reaching out to the Sandy Historical mm -hmm. Society and have, putting up a temporary exhibit from them. and Gresham and uh, Clackamas County's big. It's a big space and, and reaching across the river as one of our volunteers says, you know, we always focus on Clackamas County east of the river, but there's also West Lynn and Lico and all these, all these parts of, of Clackamas County that aren't represented in our space. So really trying to reach out and be a, a member of the Clackamas <clears throat> County community and not just the Oregon City community. Mm -hmm. So you've been given quite a bit of creative license. <laughs> oh, so much. This, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't oh, sound. Oh, geez. Yeah. I don't think anyone else, I don't know. Uh, well, I think it doesn't sound <laughs> typical. It sounds like it's a special. It is. It oh, like gosh. Uh, yeah. It really yeah. is. Uh, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of people were shocked. They're like, you got to what yeah it uh i know katie barber was one of those like they let you do what like usually you're doing the grunt work if if you're like an intern especially yes. no matter what mm -hmm. your internship is called you will end up just being the grunt runner mm -hmm. but um <laughs> what, but uh 
you guys actually you did w- real work you did real work and now you are employed I and would, you know no and i would great. chalk that up 100 percent to the director claire blaylock she is young she's enthusiastic she has a master's in museum or she has a master's in public history and uh with a focus in museum studies mm-hmm. um and she actually uh <laughs> she really she really wants uh, our interns to have a product that they can put out on their CVs and be proud of and like have a you know as a resume builder and something good for our institution we had um, we've had a couple of other interns come through we had a summer intern James from oh yeah uh, uh, what's that school that is in eastern Washington that eastern Washington school he, uh, Whitman Whitman he went to Whitman um, but he was in Oregon City with you know with family for the summer and he put together a video series for us which mm-hmm. is adorable you should watch it because I mean, he made a video about uh, our piece of uh, Nehalem beeswax this beeswax from the 16th century yeah that's cool uh, 16th century beeswax shipwreck story it's hilarious on the website um, and some other interns that have created actual products for us so mm-hmm. she it's uh, that's that's entirely claire blaylock's vision and i think so too uh another great thing about claire is she really believes in giving people a chance she does. um so i most of our core staff right now um so we have we also operate a heritage house called oh, the stevens yes. crawford oh. heritage house uh, and our house coordinator was a longtime volunteer who worked in collections and then an opportunity a grant funded job came open and we selected her or claire selected her to be the house coordinator and our marketing director is another longtime volunteer who had some really excellent graphic design experience that was much better than mine amazing artist who actually if you <clears throat> there's the picture of of you and I, Maddie Mott, um, for the oh, our Vanguard family. We're that, on has the, the, yeah, yeah. that has the picture of our organ family with the beautiful golden um, <clears throat> illustration. That that's the work of Walda McGinnis, our our now um, marketing director. Um, so yeah, I think. Well, the other thing too is um, with a small history museum, you like. You can't be picky. Like if you if someone good shows up on your door, you're like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, um, How great. Do we work we this will, puzzle piece in. Uh, we'll take advantage. We'll take you uh, and use you. We'll take. Well, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, okay. You know, but I mean, that's the reality of small history museums. Like, no. could you imagine being the executive director of a small museum? You're the only staff person, and you have been tasked with resetting a whole museum. Like, of course, you want to use the people who are. Uh, have a kind of rough idea of what they're doing. Um, but I mean, yeah, the, that's the reality for a lot of small history museums is. Yeah. And I think as far as um, like, as an intern, it was a tremendous opportunity. And I think that we continue to give our interns tremendous opportunity. I, I don't think that it always works out. We've certainly had a few interns that probably needed uh-huh. more supervision than we were able to give them in order for them to get that same kind of experience. We definitely are kind of a sink or swim um, in that capacity, um, but I mean, we've continued. Mm-hmm. I I don't think since you and I, w- we were the first interns beginning mm-hmm. last January, and I don't think that there has been a semester outside of summer where we had not Portland State interns mm-hmm. uh, that we haven't Truth. had an intern, at least one intern from Portland State. Um, and it's again that relationship building, that relationship development is super important. We wouldn't have been able to do the work we do uh, without Portland State interns, and we hope that in return that we we as an institution are giving them both a product and just a host of yeah of 
knowledge and experience on what it really means to work in a small museum because sometimes it means that you are cleaning bathrooms and sewing up little bean bags to hold <laughs> things up as our current intern will say uh oh gosh poor kirsten she's so she's really good at sewing bean bags um but yeah i mean sometimes it's dirty work like moving a cannon oh <laughs> uh, or cannon. a petroglyph a one-ton petroglyph but i mean if we i like to think of ourselves as kind of a public history lab i mean oh totally if you have an idea like like the sandbox. I mean, that Let was one know. of those, like, uh, I think this might work uh, <laughs> sort of things. But, I mean, if you have an idea and you need a space to do it, we're probably that space. So. Yeah. That's pretty cool, uh, too. But the other cool thing about a small history <laughs> museum, there's no bureaucracy. Like, all I need to get is an executive director head nod. There's, you have to get approval. But, you know, there's a lot of freedom in our. There has been a lot of freedom. And mm -hmm. that's. It's so far it's worked out for us. <laughs> Yay. So, so funding in museums. Maddie, you currently write grants for projects. <gasps> I do. Um, what goes into writing grants and how important is that job? Oh my Public god, history. how important is that job? A thousand um, percent important. <laughs> I so I, I, I like I like to talk about this because uh I kind of am like an administrative public historian. So, okay, I'm going to I'm going to share an anecdote real quick. I went to a grad school interview for a museum studies program, and I was talking with admitted students there, and they were shocked that uh, you need funding to do projects. Uh, so first off, you need funding to do projects. Just gonna let that let everyone know if you want to be a public historian, you need to find money somehow to do the project you want to do. Because if you don't find money, I'm really sorry, honey, but that's not going to yeah. happen. Panels are cheap, but they're not free. Correct. So I would say my work is pretty important. Uh, so I write grants, and I would say a large chunk of um, public history projects as a whole are going to end up being grant-funded, and a lot of public historian jobs are also grant-funded. Oh, yes. What goes into writing a grant? A lot. Well, OK, so if you're a good writer, and you enjoy writing, I think that grant writing is going to be easier for you. Um, I mean, you're going to need to, if you want to, if you're considering, okay, PSA, <laughs> if you're considering a career in public history, one, become a good writer, like practice, I don't know, try. Um, two, take a grant writing class. So I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to A, take a grant writing class, and B, I had the, all that development experience from OMSI. So the grant world was something that was pretty uh, comfortable for me. Like I knew I was aware of the funding situations in Oregon, all that good stuff. So what goes into writing a grant is uh, you select a foundation that you want to apply for. Um, and then I what I found to be successful is if you can write um, in a way that's kind of informal and communicates your idea pretty well and what your mission is and is really convincing, um, you'll, you'll be pretty successful. But the other thing is, too, you need to be able to make uh, strategic funding decisions. And that's what our current intern, Kirsten, uh, who is a grad student at PSU, is helping us work on right now is... Uh, a lot of grant writing to you, uh, and my old mentor would say 90% of grant writing is the research that you put into it, uh, is researching foundations and researching projects and kind of identifying what is trendy in the funding world, you know, and being able to say, all right, here's what's getting funded in history museums. Maybe there's an emphasis on early childhood education. Maybe there's an emphasis on interactive exhibits. And then from there, being able to say, okay, well, 
lots of people who do cool exhibits are getting funded. So let's hop on that bandwagon and see where it goes. So um, I hope that was helpful. I don't know if that. Uh, <laughs> I would say that from my experience of watching you and seeing which grants get funded, um, being a good storyteller is really important yes. to being a good grant writer. You need to sell the people that you don't know sitting on the other mm -hmm. side of that piece of paper or the, you know that <clears throat> application about why your project matters and why they should give you their money. Um, so I'm curious, Maddie. Yeah. For every grant you send out, what's kind of your rate success ratio? I'm. How I, much do you have to throw that line out? Oh, to get... where's the wood? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be honest. Uh, I would say, knock on wood, I have so I submitted, how many have I submitted? Five? I'm four out of five right now. Wow. Which is pretty good. Yeah, uh, I've awesome. been, I don't know, I think part of it, I've just <laughs> been really lucky. Um, but there are some grants where I'd sit back and be like, that was really good, that was a really good grant. But yeah, <laughs> I think what Corinne said, you, if you're a good storyteller, mm -hmm. and if you're really, if you feel really passionate about what you're doing and what you're trying to do, and you're able to communicate that in writing, because mm -hmm. uh, in the grant world, you don't get to use your, you don't get to physically speak. And I have been told at um, grant review meetings to stop talking. Uh, so you, if you're, yeah, if you can do that in writing, then you'll be really successful. And even in some projects we got, there's one instance oh. where we got, I asked. Cockless um, County Tourism Grant. We got a, a tourism grant where I asked for $13,000 and we got awarded 20000 And that was another thing that I thought was kind of interesting was looking at um, past because um, I mean we all keep record of our grants, right? So looking at the past grants for the museum, like we weren't successful. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things like, what, why? And I was kind of like, oh, maybe, maybe we're just not, maybe no one wants to support us. But that's not the case. Like people want to throw money at me. And it's just kind of being, having a mission that is relevant, having a staff that's excited about it and having a plan on how you're gonna do it, you'll be successful. Right, and I think it's when, <clears throat> it's not a matter of finding a grant and um, finding a project to match that grant so much yeah. as, you know, we at the staff level kind of reviewed, okay, well, what are the things that we want to be doing this next year and how can we fund those things? And some of the things we certainly um, had to tweak in one direction or another, but they were already ideas that we had within the institution that Maddie was then able to do the research, find the right institutions to ask for and um, then we just got wildly, wildly lucky and successful. Yeah, oh geez, oh, we got really lucky. We got, I don't know if it was my yellow blazer, I don't know, <laughs> uh, we got really lucky, um, so that was cool. Um, but yeah, I would, grant writing is, it, you can't separate from public history. I mean, no. it is. They're part and parcel. Yeah, you don't get one without the other. Um, so, I mean, Corinne does all the, glamorous like exhibits and programs and stuff but uh, if Corinne didn't have the money like we couldn't be it able doesn't to matter. do anything yeah I so, can have all the good ideas in the world and it won't matter I please if you take any if you are listening to this podcast right now and you take only one thing away it is that please learn how to write grants because you won't you won't be able to do anything if you don't yeah for reals yeah I can hear the passion in your voice. I yes. I think that's great. No, it's it's very important to I feel really strongly about money and museums. Like I just really <laughs> Well, because you, you, you don't like it's not something guests think about. No, no it's definitely not oh something you think about until you start working in museums. And, and then you're not, and, and then, then I, you, oh. can I say it's not even in small museums. I oh, just before yeah. we entered the booth I saw on New York Times that the director of the um, not the National Gallery what's the big one in New York City? The Met? 
Yes. The director of the Met has been forced down oh, wow. uh, because of funding. <coughs> mm. uh, mm-hmm. And there's the, the friction between mm-hmm. was it the director or was it the board? Um, mm-hmm. And he ultimately ended up stepping down. So it's not even like this isn't just Clackamas County Historical Society's no, problem. This, this is, is happening at the Met. Okay. So what kind of goals do you set for yourselves prior to starting a new project? Oh, man. Just That's talk a question. Away. That Just is. Just be like, all right, I have this idea. Yeah. You've got the idea. Okay. And now what do you do? Well, okay. So it was my secret goal with the museum. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had a few secret goals um, to <clears throat> take the American Indian collection out of the American Indian gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ooh, yeah, we did that. We did that. So there's actually a some kind of artifact. Um, artifact is such a technical word, but whatever. That's what they are. Um, so some type of object or artifact in every one of the galleries that we got mm-hmm. to change uh, a Native American artifact. Um, so you know, like in our 20th century gallery, I put in um, beaded items that were developed for the trade market and talked about how at the time of, um, like, you know, talking about like uh, reservation and termination um, and put that in the 20th century gallery or, you know, in the space and place gallery, we have this seven foot tall totem pole uh, carved by a guy. And like, it's a really complex story because this totem pole is carved by a guy who um, his parents were from Oklahoma, but then he was raised on the Oregon coast um and but ended up being uh, a northwest coast artist like specialty artist um who was given a name by um one of the tribes up north and it's like this really complicated little complex pole Mm -hmm. um and you know why we have it in our collection is another story um but it it was really it, it was a it was a mission of mine going into the reset to expand the story of Native Americans from the, you know, prehistory and put it into a current context. So that was, that was one of uh, I said. I think my goal coming from the fundraising perspective is um, we needed to, in order to be competitive to get grants in the future, we needed to completely, completely redo our facilities. So I think that by doing so, that has made us quite attractive in order to get um, a lot more funding. Like, we have some pretty top-notch exhibits. I mean, we are, we are up to date with scholarship. We are relevant to the community. We're telling a diverse story. So all those factors make us um, very fundable. So that was kind of the goal, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I've, I have a future goal for myself in my work. It is to hear less often oh, I've lived in this community for 20 years and I didn't even know you guys were here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is something we hear probably every day. It's every day that we're open. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was, I think those were our kind of two of our goals. Um, but yeah, I mean, I certainly set personal and professional goals. Um, but they're harder. <laughs> now that the reset is over, like everything, it, that was such a big project and that developed, like that, <laughs> that ate up so much of my life that now that it's over, um, we're definitely in the like, oh, <laughs> yeah, like what's next? 
um, kind of phase. Yeah. So. Any hints of what is next? <gasps> Any ideas you guys have that you're um, excited about? Well, <laughs> right now we are. So part of our campus, because we are a museum campus, which feels like a term that should be reserved for the Getty, but I guess not. Um, we There is a very dedicated and adorable group of family historians and genealogists who house their collection of books uh, on site with us in our research library. Um, and so... We wanted to, I mean, we're a historical society, so look at Oregon Historical Society. There are many aspects. They are a collection, they are a museum, they are a research library, they are their programs. And so, obviously, we're a historical society team. We're like, hey, maybe we should also kind of beef up our research library, because that's another big part of history. Um, so right now, with the money, with lots of money we got from our tourism... Yeah, um, that County Tourism Grant. Uh, really just threw a chunk of change at us. So now we're going to be boosting up uh, their space and being able to have uh, a research area. So we're going to add five new computers um, as well as start offering some genealogy programming uh, Mm -hmm. in our space. And it'll be kind of a community classroom as well. So that's next up. Yeah, and I think that some of the other big changes, now that our, our public space is more up to snuff and once we actually finish uh, doing some of the things of, of bringing the museum into kind of a modern like we need to finish tagging some of our items with their accession numbers for example which has never been done before in our space Crazy. Um, uh, and kind of finishing that project because <clears throat> we're not done <clears throat> um, <laughs> then we're going to be really working a lot in the behind the scenes and examining <clears throat> our collection getting that under control um Right now, I'm like cleaning, likening the back of the museum. You know, like when you have a party and you just shove everything in the closet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the party's over. <laughs> now it's time to clean out the closet and see what we have and what we've just shoved into corners. So that's kind of I, I think our the museum's focus for the next year is really on collections and probably the next few years. Yeah, that's collections a long. Is going to be a big. That's a big, big process. Deal. And then we also have a house. We have a heritage oh, the house, house. Uh, that we often. Yeah, we have a heritage house, um, and that's kind of next uh, on our list too. Of what do we do? How do we solve the problem of the heritage house? What? What? Okay, what is a heritage house versus like a historic house? We have a historic house museum mm-hmm. that was gifted to us by the daughter of the family that built the house in 1908. And she was a co-founder of the historical society. Correct. Wow. She and she was part of the Stevens Crawford family. Uh, and be so we it's I would cl- I would not classify it as a historic house as um, they are we're not they this uh, it's the it's the delicate dance that you tell uh, people when they want to give you things at a museum about um, sometimes your stuff isn't historic it's just old mm-hmm. um, so uh, we have a heritage house, which we are currently <laughs> using to tell the story of 1909 Crackmas County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has been very specific to the Stevens and Crawford family, which is, um, as many house museums are finding, is not a very engaging story for a modern audience. Most people don't really care about the Stevens Crawford family in mm-hmm. Oregon City. Um, so now we are, we have the, the, issue to deal with of what do we do with a house that is over 100 years old uh, with limited resources 
that um, Marty Stevens, as we said, gave us the house. She helped to found the Clackamas County Historical Society, and she was also a bit of a hoarder. Uh, so there's <laughs> that's an understatement. Uh, so there's just stuff, and we don't know. Uh, we don't know the provenance of the things in the house, whether they were originally of the Stevens Crawford family or if they were things that were gifted to Murdy in the 1940s and 50s mm-hmm. um, when people started to believe that they wanted to collect their mm-hmm. heritage. Um, so it's the difference between heritage, which I think is more of a celebratory history, and historic, which is involving events of a nature that are greater than themselves. That was so much more eloquent than I was going to say because I just overused the word heritage. It's kind of a museum <laughs> joke. And I was just going to say, well, I just used that word too much. But <laughs> So, yeah. So we, we've got the Stevens Crawford House. Uh, we've got a graduate um, class in yeah, there Yeah, we have right a class now. there right now. We have a public history class. Um, well, as we said, Marty was a hoarder. Um, so there's quite a, there's just lots of stuff like there's just lots and lots of stuff, lots and, and our stuff. that class right now is going through some of that stuff, and then also what I think is pretty interesting is they're creating a presentation that is going to be presented to the staff and I think some board members as well. That's there's one team that's team keep the house open as a museum, and then there's team sell it to McMinimans. Uh, so that's <laughs> not, kind not of not specifically not McMinimans, sp- yeah. just teams sell the house or make it into an, a different type of space. That it, it <clears throat> that sometimes in historic houses, preserving the house actually means not making it into a museum any further. It actually means reusing it as either private residence or bed and breakfast or selling it and simply mm-hmm. putting it on the you know National Register of Historic Places and having that preservation um, framework preserve it. Um, so yeah, so it's like team keep it as a ha- as a museum that's run by Clackamas County or team keep it something else sell it and and i believe that's a very important conversation to have yes um right now i'm working with the american battle monuments commission on helping them to uh, get the ball rolling on filling out some uh national historic places Mm -hmm. paperwork yeah and um i believe I would say the section on the form you're talking about is areas of significance. (laughs) And like, because just because it's an old building doesn't mean that the, um, the national register wants to, um, place it there, um, as a, a a landmark or, or a space. Um, but that does not mean uh, at the same time, it doesn't mean that you should demolish the right, building. Exactly, the building can be repurposed. Right, and um, there are many, many examples around Portland. And you use McMinimans as like a joking yes. thing, but it's, it's so true. Um, McMinimans has purchased quite a few uh, landmark yeah. sites, yeah, and they've repurposed you know, Edgefield, them. And, school, all of them, and yes, and then and they promote the uh, local history through yes. that area just you know in the restaurant or whatever uh theater or whatever they decide to do with it um so as you're you're talking about um things that are in the heritage house now you're going you you have a class going through it and and eventually um you have to decide which items to keep even if you do sell the house which items to keep which items to accession i'm assuming yeah. And which ones to maybe not keep, but then you have to decide where they 
go. And the task of accessioning. Oh, I don't gosh. think people understand. You, um, the task of deaccessioning is that as well yes. is even more so. <laughs> so what to accession? Thinking forward, if you're ever going to have to deaccession. Right. Oh yeah, it's process. It is, it is a process for sure, and it's a legal process yeah. as well. Oh, like definitely. beyond like deciding what like. Is it relevant or is it not relevant? Mm-hmm. Does then, it fit your mission statement? Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, like, double-checking the provenance and mm-hmm. then deciding if you're going to deaccession it. Then there's a whole public process. And then mm-hmm. what you can do if you sell it, what you can do with the money. Because it can't just go into your general funds. It has oh, to go yeah. into preserva- like mm-hmm. collections very preservation. Mm-hmm. So it's really a, it's a very specific process. And in the event that the decision was made by the board, um, to sell the house, it would still be like a five-year-long process. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you I can't mean, sell the stuff with it. I, for for example, <laughs> we have a garage full of mannequin and mannequin parts. Um, yes, broken. The, we broken we mannequin parts. We don't know are they part of our collection or not. So even just dealing with like we can't even just throw away broken mannequins. Yeah, <laughs> we have to go through a process to get rid of. Uh, Mm-hmm. Heritage fingers. <laughs> like there's uh, there's a small basket full of just fingers, oh, just straight no. fingers. But we can't throw them away because like what? If, I don't know. Are they ours? Whose are they? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The way it's been explained to me, and I've I've done an internship in in collections before. It's like where you're you're going through the collection and you're like, why do we have this? That's because <gasps> somebody. <laughs> we have, yeah, we have a palm pilot in our collection. It's like some somebody fifty years ago decided that all grandma stuff mm-hmm. was just so cool because she was here when such and such happened, which is true. Right. Her stuff is cool. But you have to understand the institution that you are donating your uh, material to. They have, they have a goal in mind. They have goals in mind, and yes, they may change. But in general, if you're talking about the Clackamas County Historic uh, Society, you're looking at Clackamas County related things. You're not, you're not necessarily interested in Grandma moved from New York, mm-hmm. and she still has a bunch of stuff from when she lived in New York as a child. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like there might be a museum out there that w- that her mm-hmm. stuff is uh, is very valuable in, but in this instance, it it just doesn't work here. But how do you say that to someone? It's how very do you hard tell to get that someone? personal attachment versus historical significance. Yeah, yeah, it's and what's a plastic cup from uh, nineteen ninety six Olympics versus like the. Um, <laughs> Oh, because I worked at the Atlanta History Center. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing! I bet there was some uh, Olympic it's uh, like, tchotchkes. It's, oh my God, they had a room dedicated, <laughs> and it's like you 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 had like streamers, and it's like why did somebody keep this? That's and amazing. Then, is that that's an, a session number on that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other weird thing about our collection, in particular, was there was a period um, in the mid two thousands where we were closed for a couple yes. of years. The, yes. the institution was closed, and it, I kid you not, when it, I say it became a heritage goodwill, people yeah. would drop off mm-hmm. old stuff at our front door, Isn't and someone crazy? would occasionally kind of drive and drive away, and occasionally we would just put it in the back. So we have years of just stuff that was literally left mm-hmm. at our doorstep. Yeah, uh, that's just old and I, not. Having gone through the it. files during the process of doing the reset, um, the number solidly a half of our files <clears throat> are currently just listed as found in collection because we just don't know. We just don't know. 
so that makes that makes the process of making decisions about what to do with our collection that much more challenging because mm -hmm. we don't have the provenance like we don't have the story we don't know yeah if it's historic or if it's just old um and that is a heartbreak and that's a that's a heartbreaking thing of like look looking you know the grandchild in the eye and saying oh thank you so much for bringing in these beautiful objects i can see that they're very meaningful to you and your family however we don't want grandma's teacups because um, they don't tell a story they don't. and that comes that that's that's the difference between um, what's historic and what's old and that's really it's a really fine line and it's oh. really hard to define that and what and I, I'm gonna just you know I'm saying this is my opinion um, but you don't want to keep something that's not going to tell a story or right. add to the story that you're trying to tell right and um, <sighs> It's just such because a challenge. Because museums can't be charged with taking care of every old thing no. you right. ever we don't need. You have limited, right. limited storage, and history keeps happening. And there's right. resources. So, uh, and <laughs> history keeps happening indeed. And that's something that I think about a lot um, as someone who is interested in um, like collections and um, uh, archives and things like that. It's like, well, what, what should we be saving now? I'm, you know, when I'm building a, an exhibit, I will look back and I'm like, oh God, I wish I found mm -hmm. like this magical unicorn object that would just click this all together. So then I think about, well, what what should we be saving now? Like, what are the what's the ephemera of today that will be historic in the future? What's the value of keeping a physical object versus keeping a digital copy? You know, it. I think it gets really. Mm -hmm. Um, complicated and interesting and exciting to think about and terrifying. <laughs> it's almost like you get to decide the story in a way that yeah, the future is going to hear. That's a lot of pressure. pressure. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. What I, stories you tell. What, what, what makes an archaeologist super exciting, uh, they find a trash heap because right. they can learn things that people didn't t write down or, or talk about or... Um, yeah. just leave for the future but here we are sitting here it's like mm, what are we going to save from us mm -hmm. for the future yeah. and that's and obviously you're not the only institution doing that so you've no. got at least the, you, have, oh. <laughs> oh my you God. have the benefit <laughs> yeah you have the benefit of um <clears throat> institutions everywhere uh organizations everywhere um the like uh eliza was talking about um she's Oregon Historical Society so they're looking at the whole state of Oregon oh and she gets to work with societies like the Clackamas County History Historical Society um, that they're specialists in their area and so she can she can collaborate and work with those professionals and you talked about um, uh, interdisciplinary uh, work as well and you know bringing in um, work with science professionals and of course you had to get some kind of um, augmented reality professionals in to help with your um, sure uh, if I count as an augmented reality <laughs> professional then yes yes we did we did bring in <laughs> well you had to learn the technology right um Sure. Uh -huh. uh, so what what I'm saying, Maddie, is what you, what you had to do was you had to reach outside of your typical history box. Yes, for sure. <laughs> history toolbox. Yeah. Um, no, no. I I know I just went on like a rant and I don't know where I was going with that. But I was just like, so excited about all of these different elements uh, coming together in this grand story. And I'm just. We could nerd out on <laughs> So I'm just nerding forever. out a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you know, I do. 
I do have one more question. Um, you mentioned in a previous conversation creating exhibits that promote STEM, and STEM's kind of a heated topic right now, um, b- mainly because it's it. A lot of people uh, assume that doesn't include the arts. <gasps> Steam, smeet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay. So, how have you done that uh, so far? And, and what do you hope to see in the future? I'm really excited about the future of the humanities collaborating with yes. the sciences. I uh, I have a bachelor of science. Same. In, yeah, uh, we both yeah. do in history, um, not just because I didn't want to learn languages, uh, but because I think that science has, has an interesting way of studying things. I think that history has, a, you know, being a historian has that's an interesting way of examining the world as well. Um, and we don't live in a world that has tidy little rows of, okay, well, <clears throat> today I'm going to walk through the world as uh, someone in the sciences mm-hmm. and tomorrow I'm going to walk through as someone from the humanities. <laughs> like <laughs> we were people, you know, that are complicated. Um, the world's interdisciplinary. Yeah, exactly. What? So, Who knew? No, Who it's knew? what? Shocker. <laughs> no, Plot twist. we don't talk to scientists. We're historians. We stay in our departments. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like, you know, it's, I think that's makes things more fun and more interesting. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. because we have things like the sandbox, the AR sandbox, and we have the um, we have a new um, the Morse code. Morse thing. code. We also have a virtual reality. <sighs> we didn't even we get talk, to talk about, about the virtual reality. Uh, we had some really cool students who know a lot more than I do about technology who made a from virtual Washington State from Washington University. State, and this Vancouver. project was funded by the Institute of Museum and Library Services. So thank you so much. Please uh, that. Uh, they created a virtual pharmacy. So we have a pharmacy in our museum that was literally taken from one spot and put in the museum. And so they made a virtual reality pharmacy where you can be the pharmacist and you can make a tincture of, I think, I don't know, heroin maybe or something. Something something crazy. Something crazy like that. And it's, uh, it's insane. It's awesome. And, and yeah. So like, it's a, it's such an exciting thing, like virtual reality. It's all this buzz, whatever. Uh, but it's also um, the fact that we have it in our museum and the fact that we, as a museum, got to work with the Washington State University Vancouver Digital Life and Media kids, pro- students, sorry. Um, we helped to design the experience. So it's actually, um, I, had a, I had a group of 20 people from a senior center, like a, um, like a rest home come through on their tour bus and they got to experience augmented or uh, virtual reality like with the full on you know the yeah you are the headset s- and the paddles and everything like that as people in their 80s who were blown away they loved it it was so fun and it, we got to be a facility that was safe and comfortable for them to have that kind of experience which then you know how many of them then commented, oh, I'm going to tell my grandson about this. I'm mm-hmm. going to talk to my great-granddaughter. I know she just got one of these for Christmas. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so we got to be an intergenerational connection point because of that product mm-hmm. that we helped to develop. Like, it's seated experience. It's something that's very safe and comfortable. Um, and that's really exciting. That So that's a science thing in a museum that's connecting generations. Yeah. And I... That's it, so great. Yeah, like, like tech, technology is not just, like, 
I don't know. I think technology is obviously becoming a, a really powerful communication method. But I mean, it's not just something that only young people are interested in. You and know, it's only, not only things that people in the sciences should be excited mm-hmm. about I, the humanities digital humanities, digital humanities. Uh, oh. yeah if, if I, I was, can give a plug to Maddie, Maddie if Mott. I can get a plug for self-promotion <laughs> I was offered a digital humanities fellowship for at one of my grad schools me. at Brown University at Brown University wow it's just you an should IV. it's fun that no it's just an IV. I should plug that <laughs> revel in my success no I'm kidding don't, don't put that in there uh, but it's yeah still, so I mean cool. digital that's humanities gross. is a thing that's really cool and uh Amy Platt of OHS does Ugh. some amazing stuff with technology. Uh, her job is the coolest ever. So I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it should totally be a combination. Yeah. Well, People also, in the humanities shouldn't be afraid of the sciences. Yeah, technology is also how we're able to share these documents. Oh yeah, yeah. digitizing. Yeah. You know, our archives. Because right? our story, I mean, the Oregon Trail story is relevant to people on the East Coast because that's yes. where people walked from. So, I mean, if we can communicate the stuff we're telling back to people who also had ancestors who resettled Oregon, I mean, that's incredible. We wouldn't be able to do that without technology. Yeah. yeah. Digital so archives exciting. are great for students, too. Oh, yes, they are. Oh, makes life anybody, so much better. Oh, anybody who can't, yeah. you know, take six weeks off to go travel mm-hmm. and dig in an archive, having a, having something digitized makes a big difference. It's wonderful. And it ha- opens up so many opportunities. You know, I think about uh, future dreams, uh, maybe not realities, but dreams of like, what if we were able to um, create uh, patterns of some of our objects and <gasps> some programming, and then, uh, you know, a teacher in Independence, Missouri could download and 3D print. That would be so cool. Our object. The, the other thing is, so you know what's really cool is that a 75-year-old volunteer at our museum came up with that idea. I know yeah. he's the best. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. Do you guys have anything else that you would like to share today? Do you have anything that, that we so. not Oh man, on? we talked for years. Oh, man. I know. We, we did we could... talk for a little. While. I got I got to spend my grant writing agenda, so that's good. <laughs> so I feel accomplished okay. in that in that respect. Awesome. Yeah, I I guess the only other thing that I would say is I think that our institution is really um, doing a good job as small as we are at trying to integrate into our community better. We made recently made the decision to stop doing. Um, our lecture series within our institution and only do them out in the community. So we actually mm-hmm. host host them in other places, especially in bars uh, where people can drink and mm-hmm. learn learn about historic topics. Um, and you know, trying to find other ways of being involved in our actual community and being relevant to our space and not just um, we don't want to be a one and done museum anymore. We want to be a place that people. Mm-hmm. feel like they have some buy-in and ownership yeah. of and you know because we obviously are not afraid to just uh give you some money and throw you at a problem and tell you to fix it <laughs> so you know um i think that that's a real bonus for us as a, as an institution and if we can keep harnessing that and harnessing that excitement um i think that it will will just pay off tremendously yeah I agree. I agree. That's all the time we have. Unfortunately, it's been a pleasure having you guys on the show. <gasps> Thanks for having yeah, us. So <laughs> we could talk forever. Oh, I man. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, as a final note, 
I want to stress that every person can contribute to the historical narrative. Local historians and historical organizations constantly seek and provide opportunities for community members to share their life experiences and input. You would be surprised how many local historical societies, museums, and groups actually exist. Um, uh, 506, there's 560 museums in just Oregon alone. Right. Oregon is a state particularly rich in local history telling. Many of many of the services and events are free to the public. One idea is to talk to a graduate student and contribute to a new scholarship. Um, plus, there are tons of opportunities to volunteer. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org and on SoundCloud. If you'd like to help the show out even more, there are a number of ways you can do that. Tell a friend, subscribe or rate us on iTunes, and follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. Signing off, I'm Lindsay Smith. And I'm Evan Smiley. Have a great week.